All right, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Let me set it up for you this way. Matthew chapter 24, you got your Bibles, you got your devices, just look. Look at what's happening. 24, Jesus is teaching, foretells of the destruction of the temple, the signs of the end of the age, the abomination of desolation, the coming of the Son of Man. And then in verse 36, he says, no one knows the day and the hour. And so verse 36 through 42 says this. I've got it on the screen for you, just in case you don't have your Bibles present which you should always have your Bible and always have your journal. But it says, but concerning that day and the hour, no one knows. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to the cross, I'm gonna ascend and I'm coming back. And so he's teaching them about this and he's saying, that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So you've got this marriage thing going on here. They were doing other things, but the writer here is communicating and mentions marriage in particular. And in verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Now remember when the flood came, God closed the door of the ark. It says he shut it. He closed the door. He sealed it. Nobody else could get in after the time was too late swept them all away. So verse 40, then two men will be in the field and one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. Pay attention to that. We're gonna hear that again. Stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So here we have this warning to be watchful, to stay awake, to be anticipating, to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Now I'm gonna drop down to verse 44. Verse 44 says, therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there is teaching happening in chapter 24. That teaching that happens in chapter 24 says, disciples, Jesus is going to the cross, Jesus is gonna ascend, but Jesus is coming back and you better be ready. And then he moves to chapter 25 he being Matthew, writing this text out. And in chapter 25, we get a parable. Again, the story that is tossed alongside the teaching, that's the illustration, if you will, to help us understand and ingrain in our minds this story about the teaching that has just happened. And that teaching has mentioned on a couple of occasions now, be ready, be watchful. You do not know what's gonna happen. So, what's the main idea of our text? The main idea of our text for today, write this down if you're taking notes in your journal, is to be prepared for the return of Christ. That message was a message for them as much as it is a message for us. Be prepared for the return of Christ. Now in their day, you might say, well, Christ never came back while they were there, but Christ called them home just as Christ will call some of us home as we finish our time on this earth. And so we must be prepared to be called home as much as we must be prepared for Christ to come back. Christ could come back at any moment. A day's like a thousand years in the mind of the Lord. It's only been a couple of days since we read of what happened here in the gospels. At any moment, Christ could return. And the question for us today is, are we ready? The admonition from the text today is be prepared for the return of Christ. Here's our outline. We're gonna walk through this story. 
First, we see the waiting in chapter 25, verse one through five. Then we're gonna see the arrival, the bridegroom's coming in verses six through 10. And then we're gonna see a wedding feast, second half of verse 10 through verse 12. And then we're gonna see the warning that comes to us in verse 13 alone. I'm not gonna read the text to you all at one time today. We're gonna walk through the story. We're gonna explain the story. We're just gonna talk through it. So we begin with the waiting. The waiting, chapter 25, verse one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So we have a story here. In this story, we have an explanation of a marriage ceremony that's gonna be put together. You have 10 young women who are part of this marriage party and they are waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. So it would be helpful for us to understand a little bit more about marriage in this day and time. So one of the commentators states it this way, I'm quoting to you here, not much is known of the actual wedding ceremony in the first century Palestine. So that means we can get the meaning of the text without this, but here's what he says. It was preceded by a betrothal that was much more binding than is an engagement in modern society. It was really the first stage of marriage and it took a divorce proceeding to dissolve it. So even their betrothal period took a divorce in order to dissolve it. At the end of that betrothal period, the marriage took place on a Wednesday, if the bride was a virgin, and on a Thursday, if she was a widow, the bridegroom and his party made their way to the home of the bride or to some other place. There is a record of a wedding in which two parties, one the bridegroom and his friends, and the other the bride and her friends, went out to meet at an unspecified place. When the two groups came together, the wedding took place. After this, there was a procession generally to the home of the bridegroom where feasting took place that might go on for days. The procession often took place at night when torches made for a spectacular display. Clearly, according to this commentator, this is presupposed in Jesus' parable. The 10 girls were involved in going out to meet the bridegroom, which make it appear as though they belong to the bride's party. They would have then had their place in the procession to the bridegroom's home for the feast. So let's walk through this here. The kingdom of heaven. This is the last time we'll see those explicit words in the book of Matthew, if you're reading through it directly, and yet it's gonna be implied throughout. We'll be like 10 virgins. These are young ladies, part of the bridal party. These young ladies took their lamps. So what are these lamps? Well, we don't know. When you read the commentators, you get two different options. Number one option is a torch. You know what a torch is like, right? You hold a torch, you have rags on the torch. If you don't have oil for the rags on the torch, then the rags burn up and everything's gone and then you don't have a torch. You've all seen this in various movies though. You have the rags, you dip the rags in the oil, you light the rags, it's the oil that actually burns off of the rags. If they're soaked well enough, then these torches will last for a long time. Some people say this is the torches because of that marriage ceremony. Remember, they're walking at night, you're carrying the torch. Boy, wouldn't that be pretty if you had 10 people carrying torches as you were coming down through the main area of a dark location. And so the torches may be what's actually intended here. It says lamps. When it says lamps, we think back to biblical times. And in biblical times, you would have a, a lamp that could be held in the hand. They were smaller or they were larger. I actually have one from biblical times. It's about the size of the palm of my hand. 
You pour the oil in it, you have a wick on it. Now we understand this from the old kerosene lamps, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about with the wick and a kerosene lamp and the bottom has got the oil in it and you've got the top and you trim the wick, you move it up, you move it down, you light it, the higher you move it up, maybe the brighter the flame, but the faster it burns or the more black smoke you might get. So you trim it till you get it just where you want it produces just the right amount of light. And as long as it's pulling that oil from the bottom, then it'll keep burning. The oil goes away, the wick burns up completely then really fast, and then you have no light. So perhaps it's a lamp. From reading the context of the text, I'm inclined to think it's more of a lamp than a torch. But either way, it would have required oil. And so that's what matters. So they take their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? All right, we've read the Bible. We understand this. We, we know what's going on here. The bridegroom's Jesus. Why? Because we've read things and we understand what happens with the bridegroom being Jesus because we've read Ephesians 5 and we understand that you have a marriage in the garden and that you have a wedding feast at the end and that the, the whole aspect of marriage is a picture of the gospel. So we understand this, but put this in this context. Even in the Old Testament times, there were mentions of Yahweh being the bridegroom or being married to Israel. And so Jesus here is making the claim to be Yahweh. Jesus is making that claim. He's already made that claim because he said to them back in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away and they will fast. So we understand from the Old Testament passages like Isaiah 54, 4, 62, 4 and 5, Ezekiel 16, 7 through 34, Hosea 2, 19, Yahweh was pictured as the bridegroom to the bride, Israel. Jesus has accepted that, said, I'm Yahweh, I am the bridegroom, and so he is the bridegroom to the church, the church that he was redeemed by going to the cross and dying for her by his blood, he's redeemed that, and then we understand from things like Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage established from the very beginning. One woman, one man should leave their father and mother, cleave to each other, And then the husband should love the wife as Christ has loved the church and gives himself for her. This is the picture of marriage. This is what the Bible tells us is marriage. This means when we, as followers of Christ, if God allows us to, enters into a marriage covenant of one man, one woman, covenant relationship for life, we are picturing the gospel. And sometimes in some locations, what you may do in a marriage covenant and the way that you stay together and the way that you treat one another may be the biggest picture of the gospel and loving one another that secular people ever see. Why are you still with that person? Why did you marry them in the first place? It's so much easier just to to never get married. It's so much easier just, why are you doing this? It is a picture of the gospel. So here we have the bridegroom. So let's look and see what happens. Verse two, five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. I don't, I don't know that there's any big deal about the number. Remember, too often we try to interpret every little detail. It's five and five, whatever. Verse three, then the foolish took their lamps. They took no oil with them. So what's the oil here? We don't have a clue. So some people want to say to you, well, the oil is good works or the oil is the Holy Spirit. Oh, we can get that, right? Because throughout the the New Testament, you see the Holy Spirit mentioned as oil. But there's a problem with that because later on, they're going to tell them to go out and buy it. Can you buy the Holy Spirit? No. So what does it mean here? It means they weren't prepared. That's all we can say. 
So there were foolish people that weren't prepared. They took no oil. But in verse four, the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. That's wise. Verse five, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So some people wanna say, don't sleep. Don't ever get any sleep. I wanna say to you as college students, get sleep. <laughs> because some of you don't get enough sleep. And then that's when you do stupid things. And then we talk to you and we say, why did you do this stupid thing? This is not like you, it's out of character. Well, I haven't slept in three days. Well, of course you did something stupid if you haven't slept in three days. Get some sleep, all right? Can I get an amen on the get some sleep? Six hours at least. Seven hours, eight hours, be nice. Your college students' exams are coming up. You're probably not getting eight hours. Get six hours and then go to Renova, right? Get some sleep. I'm just saying to you, sleep is important. They all slept. The text here is not saying don't go to bed because they all slept. And not only that, we know that Peter, James, and John slept when they were in the garden. They couldn't even stay awake to pray. They had to take a nap because they were too tired. They were still saved. We'll, we'll get to this. All right. Second point, the arrival. Verses six through 10. What happens at the arrival? But at midnight, now is it midnight? Is it dark? Is it late? Is it 2 a.m.? It doesn't matter. It's late. They fell asleep, but at midnight there was a cry. So the cry wakes them up. What does this cry say? Here's the bridegroom. Awake. Get up. Get ready. The bridegroom's here. The moment you've been waiting for has arrived. The trumpet is sounding. The Lord is returning. Come out to meet him. Verse seven, all of those virgins rose, and this is why I think it's probably the smaller lamp, because it says they trimmed their wicks. I don't, I don't know why that would be there otherwise, but it said they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, you rather go to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to, to buy, the bridegroom came. All right, so here's what's happened. Don't focus on the fact that when they asked them for some oil, they said no. And think, how rude of those wise young ladies not to share their oil and be giving and do unto others as God would have them do unto you. Remember, this is a parable. A parable has one main point often. And in this particular context, that main point is be prepared, be ready. The foolish were not prepared. They were not ready. And so the wise said to them, it's not gonna work for us to share because there won't be enough for us and then nobody's gonna have any oil and we're not gonna have lit. So you go buy some. Go buy it for yourself. Now, some of us are inclined that way anyway. You're selfish to the core and you would say to anybody that wants to borrow something of yours, go buy it yourself. What's your problem? Be prepared. Others of you, this will be a problem for you. So just don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's not the main point of it. Here comes the bridegroom. Get ready. The foolish young ladies, when they do this, it says, give us some oil for our lamps are going out, present tense. The wise say there's not gonna be enough, so go buy it, go to the dealers. Are the dealers gonna be open at midnight? I don't know, again, it doesn't matter. This is just what the story's telling and it's telling us to be prepared. If the stores aren't open at midnight and they don't have Amazon, it's all the more reason for them to be prepared ahead of time, right? Plan far in advance, have all of the oil there. So the arrival takes place and then we move to point number three. Point number three and 10 is the wedding feast. So the wedding feast is gonna happen and look at what happens in, in, in verse 10. The bridegroom came and those who were ready, all right, underline that. Remember, be watchful, be ready. Those who were ready, this is what he's saying to us. 
They went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. No doubt the door being shut would have hearkened their minds back to what they had just read about Noah and the ark and the door being shut before that universal flood took place and everybody died, that God closed the door and nobody else could get into the ark. Verse 11 says, afterwards, the other young ladies came and they also said to them, look what they said, Lord, Lord, open up to us. Notice what they say here. Lord, Lord, does that remind you of anything? Matthew chapter seven, verse 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, now all right, writers, where, where are my English majors and my writers and my fiction writers in the house? Where are you? All right, you're writing something and you're trying to get a point across and you've used Lord, Lord once and now you're gonna use Lord, Lord again. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is not accidental. This is something we should be circling and in our minds, this should give us an indication here of something important that's taking place. And it says in chapter seven, verse 23, not everybody that says Lord, Lord is gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The foolish young ladies come to the feast and they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. This is the shocking point of the parable. Let's back up for just a moment and think about this. Five foolish, five wise the five foolish and the five wise were all waiting. They all had torches or lamps or something. Weren't prepared with the oil, I get it. They all said, Lord, Lord. They all had some affection or appreciation for the bridegroom. They all understood what was taking place here. And now they knock on the door, open up to us. I never knew you. Oh, wait a second, weren't they part of the bride's party? Don't you know them? Didn't you understand who this was? I never knew you. And verses like these in the Bible scare us absolutely to death. Because verses like these in the Bible terrify us that maybe we are of the ones that will say to him one day, Lord, Lord, and he will say to us, I never knew you. And so it's real easy for us sometimes just to say, all right, I'm not gonna emphasize that point enough. But to be faithful to the text this morning, I can't, I can't not emphasize this to you. Because what I understand and what I know is that all throughout history, there have been those who would have claimed to have been Christians. There have been those who have been part of going to local churches. There have been those who have been students at Christian universities. There have been those that have filled out an application and filled out a testimony on that application of how they knew the Lord, and yet they never knew the Lord. There are parables that we look at through Matthew, like the tares and the wheat, 
Do we, do we pull up those tares? No, we let them grow right alongside the wheat. They look just like the wheat until it's time for harvest. And then we pull them up and we ship them off and we burn them. And there are other parables like the one with the net and you cast the fish and all the fish comes in and then you separate the good fish from the bad fish and the bad fish is off to be burned. And that's what we understand happens. So I need to say to you as students that I care about, as faculty and staff that I care about, I need to say to you, this parable is a parable that asks us the question, are you ready? There will always be tares. There will always be bad fish. There will always be the Cain's in Adam's household. There will always be the Judases in the disciples. There will be those because God's word is true that will on that day say, Lord, Lord, and he will say to them, depart for I never knew you. So we come to the last point, point number four, we come to the warning and in the warning, verse 13 says, watch therefore, be ready therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. No one knows the day or the hour. Watch, be ready. All right, I have some concluding thoughts for you. Number one, what are the similarities and the differences between the foolish and the wise? The similarities. They're all invited. They're all waiting. They all confessed him as Lord. They all fell asleep. They all believed that the bridegroom was coming. What's the difference? The wise were prepared. The foolish were unprepared. Okay, Cedarville student. What are the similarities? I grew up in a Christian family. I chose to go to a Christian college. Go to church. No Bible, no breakfast. I read my Bible. I check all the boxes. Hear me carefully. None of those things will get you into heaven. When we stand before the door and knock, there's only one thing that will get us into heaven. I have repented of my sin and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. There is nothing else. It is nothing but the blood of Christ Jesus. It is not how much you do. You cannot earn it. It is not the things you do. You cannot earn it. And if you say to me, this is a Christian university, and I say to you, yes, and I've been doing this for a little while now. I've been here long enough to see students walk through these hallways for 1,000 days and then go out and start living a life. And then on Facebook, you start seeing things fall apart and you're mourning because you're like, what in the world is happening? 
Student, let me plead with you. If your heart is not given over to Jesus, if you have never repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you cannot do this on your own. You must be born again a child of the King. And if you've repented and put your faith and trust in Christ, maybe you're struggling with some sin issues, you're not where you wanna be, but you're worried about it, that's okay, you've repented. You put your faith and trust in Christ. Jesus died for all those sins on the cross. But if you're in here thinking, I'm a good enough person, I can just look like everybody else. I'm going to make this happen. No, you can't do that. You must repent and believe. You know what? I've been doing this a while. I've met students at Cedarville, lost. I've had the privilege of leading one student to the Lord during Bible conference. Didn't understand the gospel at all. So I said, what did you put on your application?" So I wanted to come to Cedarville. So I Googled testimony and copied and pasted and put that in my application. And then thought for a second and said, is that a problem? (laughs) We just need to get the new testimony put into your application. You're all right. Jesus brought you here. Jesus saved you. Praise the Lord. But there's some here. There's 4,000 of us. Come on. There's some here. You came here to play a sport and you care about a sport and your sport is your idol and you do sports because that's what you wanna do and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Has to be. I know there are because I talk to you and some of you have friends and I won't call out the various areas that you're studying in, but if you have a friend and your friend tells you I'm lost and I'm here because mom and dad said they would pay for it if I came to school here and they wouldn't pay for it if I went to school anywhere else, you know what your mission in life is? If somebody invests in you that confidence is that you pray for that person and you be a good friend to that person and you share with that person and you love with that person and you treat that person just like God has given you this special friend that you're gonna be there for. So that moment when life falls apart and that moment when they're open to that discussion about the gospel, you are there to plead with them as though Christ himself were pleading with them. Be reconciled to God. It's your mission. A friend confides in you and says, look, I know I'm not saved. They're a friend. They have opened the door to you to say to you, I know I'm not walking with the Lord. I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And let's be honest about this. Sometimes we get prideful and we start saying, I want it my way. I want the God I've created in my own mind. I don't like some of the things that are in the Bible, so I'm gonna change it. I'm gonna rewrite it. I'm gonna make it say whatever I want it to say because I want a God that functions in the way I want God to function. And the Bible says, no, there is one God. That God has revealed himself to us. Scripture sits in authority over us. We don't sit in authority over it. We don't rewrite it. We don't change it. If we put it out on social media, it's different. That doesn't mean it's changed. That just means we're foolish. This word is his revealed word about the one true God. And if your heart rebels against that word, no, I don't want that. Be cautious, dear student. My plea for all of you is that all of us will be saved. And on that day, we say, Lord, Lord, we say, enter into the joy of your master. So question number two for you is how can we be prepared for the return of Jesus? Repenting of our sins and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That's it. There is nothing else you can do. I tell you all the time, no Bible, no breakfast. Memorize the word, meditate on the word, 
be in the word. All of those are great things. They are good spiritual disciplines. I want you to do all of those things. I want you to pray without ceasing. I want you to have good spiritual disciplines in your life. They're important to spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, but don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you. If you do all those things and you keep pushing farther and farther away from Christ, if you check all those boxes, but you have never repented and humbled yourself before God Almighty and confessed your sins and believed in him and made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've never done that piece, all of those works will not save you. Coming to a Christian university, as wise a decision as I think that is, will not save you. Walking across a graduation stage with a degree will not save you. Going to church every single Sunday will not save you. Do you understand what I'm trying to get across to you? So when your heart begins to push back against everything that God's word says and says, nope, I'm gonna live a different lifestyle. I'm gonna do this a different way. I'm gonna do this my way. I'm gonna push back and I'm gonna look for arguments that might affirm, as Isaiah says, it might take what's evil and call it good. I'm gonna look for ways to do those type things and push back against God's word and God's authority. Those should be signs in your life and in your heart. I've got a problem. My heart is not where my heart needs to be. I can't know your heart. I can look at the fruit. I can say fruit sometimes concerns me. I can say I pray for you and I plead with you that all of you will repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I know some of you have been saved while you are at Cedarville. You came here with a profession of faith on an application and you realized I didn't understand that about the gospel. I didn't fully give myself to Christ. I grew up in a Christian home. I was relying on mom, relying on death, and God has no spiritual grandchildren. This oil does not transfer from the wise to the foolish because you have to make your own preparation and your own decisions, and you have to repent and put your own faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the answer to number two, how can I be prepared? It's not that I have good friends. It's not that I find somebody who's got a whole bunch of oil so I can borrow some oil when the time comes. It's not that I'm around somebody that's super spiritual so I can ask them all of the questions. It's not that I come from a good mom and dad and a good grandpa and grandma. It's not that I'm members of one of the best churches in the country. It's that I have repented and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and if I've never humbled myself before God, if the fruit of my life doesn't show that I'm living for the king, then time out, take a moment, examine your heart. You are the only one that can know that you have repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, would you do that right now? Would you talk to your RD? Would you talk to your RAs? Would you talk to your faculty member at your next class? I promise you, you walk into your next class, to your next faculty meeting, to your next uh, class with a faculty member, and you tell that faculty member, hey, I've got an issue. I just realized I'm not saved. I need to be saved. That faculty member in that class will pause and pray with you and rejoice because that's more important than any other lesson that takes place on this campus today. I guarantee it. Can I plead with you? Be prepared. So then the question to leave you with is to which group do you belong? I can't tell you. You can look at fruit sometimes and people do some really stupid things. They're still believers. They still repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They struggle with the flesh. You can look at people sometimes and they look like they've got everything together and yet they're working it all in their own righteousness and their pridefulness is in their righteousness and their works 
and they may not be a true believer. I can't tell you, I'm not God. But I can say to you as a brother in Christ, I can say to you as someone who loves you and prays for you and cares for you deeply, would you examine your own heart right now? Would you examine your own heart today as to which group you belong to? And if you're not sure, would you find somebody that you can have a good conversation with about what you may need to do? Ears to hear. All right, if you're here right now and you're like, I don't care about any of this, I can probably tell you what group you're in. Can I say to you that I wanna pray that you have ears to hear and eyes to see that this is the most important decision of your life? Lord, let me in. Why? I got a degree from a Christian university. Go away. I never knew you. End of this chapter. You're gonna separate the goat from the sheep. And some are gonna go to eternal punishment, some are gonna go to eternal reward. It's the same word for eternal in both. If you believe you're gonna spend eternity in heaven with Christ, there's an eternity of separation from Christ too, if that's what you choose. May I plead with you today. Repent of your sins and be reconciled to God. God, you are the only one that knows. You are the one that saves. So in all of our lives today, Lord, would you either confirm or would you call us questions? Lord, if there are those who aren't saved, would you allow them not to be able to sleep tonight till they answer this question? Would you allow their soul to be disturbed? Would you allow, Lord, whether it's the fear of hell or whether it's the realization of their lostness or whether it's the realization of how great you are and how much we need grace and forgiveness, whatever it is, Lord, would your spirit use it to draw people to salvation so that we may repent and believe in you? God, would you do your work so that no one, no one, Lord, who spends their time on this campus would ever walk away not knowing you as Lord and Savior. Lord, would you grant that, that every person who shows up on this campus would understand and know and be so drawn to you that they would repent and believe. Lord, would you help us to be passionate about the gospel as you are? Would you help us to take note to these warnings and to evaluate our own hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.